0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. According to the World Bank, approximately 40% of all children in the world attend private schools. Many of these children are poor. Some are extremely so. Many educators find that statistic absolutely startling, indeed frightening. The World Bank and other international institutions have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into state-operated schools in developing countries across the world in order to provide sturdier school buildings and higher paid college trained teachers. But the spread of these state schools over the past half century or more has left student achievement in the developing world far behind the level attained in the industrialized world. Along comes James Tooley, a critic of the conventional wisdom, who says that the private schools operate at least as well, probably better than the state operated schools in much of the developing world. And they do so at a trifle of the state school cost. Well, his latest book, Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High Caliber, Low Cost Education, has just been published by the Independent Institute. And I'm so pleased to have James Tooley with me on the Education Exchange today. He is the vice chancellor, or as Americans would say, the president of the University of Buckingham in England, where he also serves as the Professor of Educational Entrepreneurship. So Chancellor Tooley, thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, uh, Chancellor Tooley, you've traveled wide and far in your search for schools in the poorest places in the world, and given the poverty you've seen in urban slums and rural communities, how is it possible that there are private schools to which children pay tuition?
1: Yeah, uh, so you're absolutely right. I've been traveling to the poorest slums in the world, the poorest rural areas. And I first discovered this phenomenon, you know, people obviously in the, in the places themselves, they knew about it, but people outside, people like you and me in America and Britain, hadn't heard of this phenomenon and I I discovered it for, for Outsiders um, in the year 2000. And one- How did
0: it happen? How did it happen that you discovered it? You absolutely are correct. You discovered it. I've never seen this before. So when I first came across your writings on this, I said, this is absolutely something new. How did you stumble across this? Or was it a more
1: planned undertaking? So so there were there were two, two reasons why, in a sense, I went looking all right so i'd become an expert on private education by this time um because of my th- phd thesis and some work i'd done private education as we know is all about the elites and the middle classes and above you know and for whatever reason my mission in life was about supposed to be about helping the poor so there was that that disconnect with my life so i used to spend time you know going into some of the poorest slums to have, you know, just to see what was going on. It was just, just it was a bit of interest to me to see what was going on there, you know, irrespective of what I might find. But the second reason was, and it, it does come into the book, Really Good Schools, it's one of the later chapters, is about the history of education in Victorian England. And one of the reasons why Milton Friedman changed his mind about vouchers, or at least, uh, um, yeah, he changed his mind about vouchers and so on, because, The evidence from Victorian England, produced by my mentor, Professor Edwin George West, Carleton University, obviously uh, in the past, um, showed that there were these, what I call now, low-cost private schools. There were low-cost private schools in the slums of Victorian London, Newcastle, Manchester, and so on. And I wondered, I had a hunch that there might be similar in India, where I was looking first and then later in Africa. So it was a hunch, an inspired hunch as it turns out that what was going on in Victorian England might happen in the present day slums of Africa and India. And as I say, I also felt you know, a, a disjunction in my life that you know, I should be about serving the poor and somehow I was not on track to do that. So I went into the slums and I found one of these schools. And that was a long answer to your question, why are they there? And I guess it's two major reasons. One is there are government schools. Now, Americans would say public schools. You use this word state schools. That's handy for an Englishman. There are state schools serving these poor communities. They're often on the outskirts of the poor communities. They're often so a distance away. You have to travel to get to them. They are not seen as desirable by the parents, by and large. And so the parents want a better education, a quality education for their children, they choose the private schools which are local, in the slums, run by someone they know, and they perceive, and they're not wrong, they perceive them to be better than the the state schools. So that's really the major reason. I think also they want accountability. They like the fact that they're paying a little bit of money and therefore the the proprietor, the owner, will be responsible. For them in the way that the well how can is. the
0: proprietor find a teacher who who can afford to teach given the small contributions that the parents are making to those so
1: school. so the thing about the thing about the slums and the poor areas in some of these poorer countries is wages are a lot lower than we're used to now and there is there are a whole range of um potential teachers in these communities who are willing to work for the amount of money that can be afforded. And in fact, it's a you know, definite boost for them to work for that money. If you think of the what, what you'd call elementary schools and so on, primary schools, there, you know, you don't necessarily need to be superbly qualified in order to teach in those schools. Then, as you go up to the secondary schools, in these poor areas, you'll often find um, people who are students at universities um, who want some extra funding. So they're well ahead of where their students will be, but they're not. You know they're not superbly qualified, so you know that's that sounds like a disadvantage. But the result seems to suggest these teachers do better.
0: So how do we? Now I I suppose you talked with the principals and the teachers at these schools. Do Do they speak English? How do you communicate with them?
1: Yes. So typically, I've been working in in you know what are now called Commonwealth countries, so typically English speaking countries, so India, my work has been in Nigeria, South Sudan, uh, uh, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Liberia, these are all English speaking countries and in in parts of India, perhaps English isn't so well spoken, so then I would have an interpreter with me, but typically one can make one self understood to the owner or the proprietor. Uh, And what are their motivations? Why
0: are they, why have they set
1: up these schools? I mean, it's it's a mixture of motivations um, and I don't want to generalize too far, but it would typically be someone who has an educational bent. So it might be one of the better educated people, better schooled people in the community, um, who parents might encourage that person or the person now might see a business opportunity. I'll create a school, and that can give me and my family an income. People want an income, but it also can help raise the the standards of the community. That you know, so so it's it's a mixed motive. Yes, I want to make some money. Yes, I want to serve my community, and that's yeah. You know, that that would be a typical set of motives.
0: Well, so I can just hear somebody saying, "These are just daycare programs where where children are left while uh, parents are making a living." We just had a uh, a, a school board sat around and said the kids the parents want these kids to go to school even if COVID is in the air because they just want a babysitter so aren't just babysitting institutions
1: I, i think that accusation could better be leveled against the the state schools the public schools there you do see precisely that the teachers if they're present and lots of data shows on average um, in, in the different countries this is about 50% teachers are teaching 50% of the time they should be teaching in the state schools, in the, in the government schools. There you do just get babysitting, there you get the teacher abandoning the children. This is the word I heard many times when I went to the, the slums for the first time and I went the very first time I went to see one of these government schools. Um, you know, it's a beautiful building, much better building than the, the, the private schools, much better building. And I went there and there should have been seven or nine teachers in the school, there were two teachers present. And I went into these nice classrooms and 130 children were sitting on the floor, sitting on the floor, doing nothing. But, you know, their faces turned to me so eager, so bright hide to do something, but because there are only two teachers who are babysitting, doing nothing in the private schools, no. The, the parents pay fees and they pay fees. They're, they're, they're small fees to you and me, but to them, they're an important contribution. They pay fees. They expect more from their, their the, the, the school owner. They expect more from their teachers. And the teachers generally are teaching really well, teaching really hard. And if they're not, the parents go and complain to the proprietor or indeed eventually they remove their children. I've run schools in these places. I know what it's like. Parents come, they keep their eye. Your teacher was not teaching on Friday. Why not? The teacher was not checking the books, as I think you say in America, marking the books on last Wednesday, not sitting home. Why not? The parents are on top of it. And so they are not child-minding institutions, but the government schools might well be. So while well,
0: other researchers have pointed out that, uh, uh, one day out of five, a teacher may not even come to school. Their absenteeism rates among in the state schools is is really high, and it's not just in India. It isn't in, in India. In fact, uh, uh, some scholars there went and and they they set it up to to, to check, and they found that uh, uh, over and over again. And the people have since found it in countries all over the world. That, but why is this? Why is it so hard to get somebody who's paid a decent salary to show up?
1: Yeah. And, and you, the payment of a decent salary is very well said because some of the teacher unions say, oh, their salaries aren't decent. No, they're very decent. If you're a teacher in a government school, typically um, compared to other salaries. And if you're forgetting, they get a decent pension as well. So it's a decent package they're getting. Um, the problem is there's no accountability in the government schools, or very little. That's both extremes, so there's very little accountability. I was talking to some government um, uh, inspectors uh, this was in a state in India and they said to me um uh it's almost it's it's impossible to remove a teacher if they don't turn up if they're drunk if they're they're abusing children it's impossible to remove a teacher only god can remove a teacher and then the person leaned forward said actually not even god you know it, it's that sort of established there in these places where teachers cannot be removed the unions are very strong the um the government often in the upper houses in the Indian states, for example, the unions have representatives there um, in the political process and they can't be touched. And, and so I think that's, that's, that's very straightforward. And you know if that's, that's, that would be one's intuition, but it's borne out time and time again, by the way um, parents abandon these government schools, take their children, vote with their feet, pay money because the government schools, they don't teach well enough, or enough.
0: So, um, so, but you know, this, I can, I can understand there could be some bad teachers, the, the drunks or the no-goods, there's always that everywhere, but, but is this systemic? Why would it be systemic? What, what is it that, um, why is it that there seems to be a very high percentage of, of teachers uh, that don't seem to think that this is something that they have to take seriously? in the schools I'm saying yeah
1: Yeah. well I I think it's it's because of the sort of thing I said earlier but but imagine yourself you're you know you and I were young we were young once energetic teachers we go into a school I've met teachers like this you know they are going to make a difference they are going to teach they're gonna do everything and then you know they they find that they're one of two teachers where there should be nine in the school or whatever And, um, you know, but they're still going to stick with it. But then they realize, well, therefore, they've got to look after 130 kids. That looking after 130 kids is hard, you know. And a year, two years down the road, they're thinking, you know, why would I bother when no one else is bothering? They're getting the same salary as me. They're sitting at home doing other work. Why would I bother? But they still carry on. And Eventually it would grind you and I down, wouldn't it? We would say, oh, you can't beat them, join them. And, um, you know, so I think the systemic thing is because, teacher unions are so strong in protecting the interests of their teachers. Um, and secondly, because the system then just grinds anyone down who wants to change it, really. that's Well, you said a lot of
0: this in your first book, The Learning yeah. Tree, which came out uh, some a decade or more ago, yeah, I the believe.
1: Bu- the Beautiful Tree,
0: yeah. The-, the Beautiful Tree, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the Beautiful Tree. Uh, and it, it opened up the eyes of many, and even in the philanthropic world and even in government agencies, they, they probably discovered private schools they, they had never known before, but they have not sort of bought into your recommendations here. They're still funding state schools all over the world. They're pouring, lots. Of the international organizations are doing a lot to fund education. That's one of their main philanthropic activities why and they are very critical of your work I well, think, i'm pretty sure they're pretty critical of your work yeah. what I mean, they, they seem to be so why why are you unable to convince them
1: well i th- i think you know I, I don't i don't like to blow my own trumpet but i think you're being actually unfair to how people have changed since that book came out as you say over a decade ago the beautiful tree um, and, and in a way, part one of the book, and perhaps it's the, I think it's the bit you like of the book, I'm not sure you like the rest, but the bit you like of the book is in fact an update of the beautiful tree. And I hope you know, it takes us to further places, you know, war-torn states, Liberia, South Sudan, Somalia, Sierra Leone. So it extends the argument, I hope, and, and challenges some recent evidence. So it is an update. But no, the beautiful tree did change people. And before that beautiful tree People either denied the existence of the school, quite these schools, quite commonly just straightforwardly denied. truly totally you're not telling the truth, you know, or you're something strange is going on. They either denied them or they denied their significance. And once that book was published, and I'd I, I, I won a prize with the um, Financial Times, International Finance Corporation. Private sector development award a few years before. And I you you did you, Paul, thank you very much, did a wonderful cover version of Education Next promoting this idea. And I had a leader in the Financial Times about it and so on. Um, and slowly people did start coming in. And what we got was first of all governments. So the British government, 2010, um, the person who involved the Secretary of State for International Development, recommended my book to all his education people. The senior civil servant said to people, why why on earth didn't you tell me about this? You know, you're not denying it now. Why didn't you tell me that the majority of kids, 70, 80% of kids in the urban slums of Lagos, Kampala, Delhi are going to private schools. Why did you, did you not think I was interested in this and therefore started moves where they funded programs to help develop either the schools or the regulatory environment and the, the, the environment for loans and finance for these schools. So governments have done it, international agencies have done it, and they've got into quite a lot of stick with the unions and the NGOs, but international agencies like the, the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, USAID, how do you pronounce it, USAID, you know, and so on. These have got into this, um, some European organizations, and then wonderfully quite a few philanthropists have created funds for loan schemes for these schools, loan loan programs for these schools to borrow and to help improve, get an extra toilet, a computer lab, an extra classroom, loans for students to borrow, to pay, you know, scholarship funds, and then certain chains of these schools have emerged. So I I think a lot has changed, and I've been very much aware of this. Well, that's great to hear. I I I I didn't know about
0: uh, all yeah. these positive, but they must be still not the dominant pattern it, it's still well, these these schools are pretty much on their own for the most
1: part well, they are on the on so so there, there was a real growth of this stuff you know from 2009 2010 when the book was published to you know, perhaps a couple of years ago. And, you know, I was very much on top of it all then. And I, you know, you 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 introduced me, i got distracted by the, the weight of running a university now and perhaps I'm not so involved. And, and other forces have become stronger like the unions and the, they've now created some things called the Abidjan principles where, you know, private sector funding of education is discouraged. But certainly I think our, what you might call our opponents don't think that this has gone away. Um, they are very active in trying to fight this whole thing, this movement of low-cost private schools. Um, but, but in some ways, the schools are on their own. In some ways, that's not a bad thing. You know, you you can get a lot of people from outside coming in, aid agencies and whatever, and they put money into what they think is the right way, but they distort the market. They put it into one group rather than another. They put it into regulatory environment, but actually, the regulatory environment was perhaps overlooked in the past, where it's now looked after too closely. So it's not such a bad thing that the schools are on their own, actually. This is a burgeoning, spontaneous order, if you like, of low-cost private schools, which doesn't need outside help, it doesn't need me there. Um, You know, it it just needs parents with a small amount of money, hundreds of thousands of these parents going along, millions of these parents going along, funding paces at a school which then can, can cope very well on its own. Thank you very much. Chancellor, uh, I have a question about
0: a study that was done in India by Kartik Muraludharan and Venkatesh Kitesh They're very fine scholars. They're economists. And this study was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, a very prestigious journal, which is uh, actually edited here at Harvard University. So I've got to say it's a great journal, and it is a great journal. Um, This study shows that in India, the private schools were performing no better than the state schools. They had the randomized clinical trial, just like in the COVID situation we're in now, where we we got the COVID uh, vaccinations uh, because we did randomized uh, clinical trials to show they were effective. Now, when they use this Technique to study the impact of school vouchers that allowed kids to go to private schools, they found no effect. And so I suppose the positive side of this is that, uh, you know, they were a lot less expensive. So they were getting the same effect without any more money. But still, you've been saying these private schools are more effective than the public schools or the state schools. So could you comment on this study?
1: Yeah, well, so. I heard that story. The same, if you you've relayed it to me from some of my friendly critics, you know, and and I felt the same as you know if you're implying. I should feel that yes, there are crumbs, there are crumbs of comfort from the study. That yes, these schools are doing as well as the government schools. And the children in them are doing as well at a fraction of the cost. So they're better value for money. But that's not what I've been telling people, you know, and that's not what my research, Now I'm not a great researcher like these two researchers you you mentioned. Um, and I'm very much, you know, I try to do lots of things and maybe don't do it as well as I could do. Um, so I saw that research and I felt discouraged, and, you know, um, and was about to, um, you know, perhaps do a mayor culpa, but, you know, saying, well, this is, these schools are not as good as I thought. And then it happened, I was running some schools, the, the, the state is Andhra Pradesh, it's now being bifurcated to so the schools where, in a mixture of Telangana and Andhra Pradesh now, but Andhra Pradesh then, I was working there. I was actually running some low-cost schools myself in the in the slums in, in Hyderabad. And um, I asked a group of people who I knew very well to come and measure the performance of my schools against the performance of government schools and other private schools. Because when you're running schools, you want to know what they're doing. You know, It's a very sensible thing to do. And the team came in and um, measured and then I, you know, they presented the PowerPoint presentation of the findings, and and I'm never had I'm never happy to sing PowerPoints. So I wanted to go into the data. So I went into the data and I looked at the test scripts and I said, hang on. <laughs> the government test scripts are in Telugu, the, the regional, the state language, but the private school scripts are in English. Um I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is on the tests, the tests. The tests themselves, the maths <laughs> and science tests are in. English for the private schools are in Telugu the regional language for the for the for the state schools and so I said well that seems a bit odd doesn't it and they said no that's what we did for our study we did for and they mentioned the two major researchers you've mentioned published in the major economics journal and I said no that's not right because but they said we did it because the private schools were often English medium whereas the state schools are often Telugu means. I said, no, but that's that's an aspiration. I said, you know, that's an aspiration of the English medium. But they teach in Telugu until they're much older, and these kids are all young. So therefore, it's grotesquely unfair to test the children in one language in the private schools, one language in the in the um, in the um, state schools. And I wrote to these researchers and said, did you really do that? I'm sure I've got muddled up here. They said, yes, we did it. That's what we did. They found out they'd done it. And I'm sure they weren't doing anything. They weren't doing anything. Their design was perfect. It's just this one little detail. So the outcome is they tested the children in the government schools in the, their mother tongue. They tested the children in the private schools in uh, foreign language. And anyone who knows anything about testing will probably guess that the children in the mother tongue would do better than in the in the in the in the.
0: Well, in I know I wouldn't do well in Telugu i
1: can't yeah but actually it's slightly more subtle than i'm saying so that the half of the private schools that said they were english medium they were tested in english the half of the private schools that said they were telugu medium were tested in telugu so immediately i thought ah the lights went off here we have therefore got a measure of how children do with exactly the same test. You can look at the results for the government schools, all of them, and those half, roughly, of the private schools which did the Telugu test. And when you look at those results, not such big samples, you know, there are some econometric reasons why the result is not so robust as the first one. Nonetheless, the result is at least suggestive: the kids in the private schools where they were tested in Telugu. Do much better, significantly better than the kids in the government schools. So let's just recap: the testing was unfair. When you compare like with like, with the same tests, identical tests, the kids in the low-cost private schools do much better than the kids in the government schools. And therefore, not only are these schools cheaper, better value for money, they are more effective. So it was just absolute serendipity that I managed to find that out. But actually. That research, I think, vindicates my work rather than undermines it.
0: You make another point in your book. I, t- I found this point absolutely fascinating, uh, Professor Tooley. But the, the other uh, point you make is it was interesting, too, because uh, a, a couple of Nobel Prize winners, or at least one uh, in economics, uh, did a study in, I think, Kenya and found out that Actually, in the co-ed schools, they had more boys there than girls, so they seem not to be treating uh, women in the same way as men. And so, I'm wondering if that's—I can see how in the private sector, you might the parents might say, "Yes, let's get the boys educated, but not the girls in the family." Is it—is isn't that an issue that?
1: Uh, yeah. So the study you referred to was actually Tanzania. If I Tanzania. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that, that's the section. So I, 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 the first part, as I say, which is an update on the beautiful tree, just looks at the various features of, of of low-cost private schools, looks at their affordability, looks at their quality, but also looks at their fairness and the fairness in terms of gender. And there are lots of, lots of studies being done on this. And, you know, they are quite technical and, you know, that's quite technical for me. And but... Nonetheless, when you get to the bottom of them, well, the, the study you raised there in Tanzania is interesting because it was a study which, actually, if you looked at all the evidence that they present and you added up the figures for the, the girls and the boys in state and the private schools, actually, you found there were there, was, there were more girls in the private than the than the state schools but there was a certain headlines that the the study person, you know, the people writing the study had highlighted, such as the one that there were more, there were more, sorry, more boys than girls in the co-ed schools. And unfortunately, people reading that then reported to, you know, aid agencies that therefore the the schools were unfair to girls. But in fact, the co-ed schools were all government schools. You know, it was the single sex schools that were the private schools and there were more girls. And and I, I, you know, I tell lots of stories along this, but, you know, so one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, about Malala, okay? And then I broaden it out into other contexts. Um, But Malala, we all know her story, don't we? She's the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was shot by the Taliban on her way to school. um, And we're told often that the school was where her father was the headmaster. no. Her father wasn't the headmaster her father was the owner of that school the proprietor it was a low cost private school one of 400 in the swat valley of pakistan one of the poorest most if you like traditional use that word traditional of the places in pakistan where women are you know perhaps haven't got the same freedoms elsewhere but girls like malala are going to private schools there and the taliban knows that that's why they targeted this private school and then you can go over to other parts of pakistan afghanistan uh, I looked at northern Nigeria, where the Boko Haram is active. They target private schools. Why? Because girls are there. They don't want girls to be going to schools at the school at all. And they know that girls can be found in these private schools. So I think the um, this 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 misconception. It's a myth. It's a myth. And the bits of evidence I cite in the book are um, in in most parts of West Africa. In most parts of India now, girls outnumber boys in schools, and it's an extraordinary phenomenon. It should get much more attention, including the low-cost private schools. And in those traditional parts of places like Pakistan, the research shows that if there are private schools in your village, girls are twice as likely to go to school as when there are no private schools there. So it's a myth. You can't undermine these low-cost private schools saying they're not gender, friendly they are very friendly to girls and a lot of parents you know reported in studies and you can talk to them they say they prefer their ch- their girls to go to private schools because they're safer there apart from anything else they learn better but they're safer too
0: all of this is totally fascinating but there's one fact out there and that is is that the developed world still does not Achieve well on the PISA tests that are administered by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and um, you know they've been doing this for some time. And and we still have these huge disparities between the developed world and the developing world in performance. Now, if these private schools are out there doing what you're describing, why do these international comparisons still show such disparate levels of? Accomplishment performance by students at age 15.
1: Well, I mean, I think one of the issues is the tests like PISA and so on. I mean, they're not widespread in the developing world because you know they're not as common there as they would be in in, in our countries. But, but there are
0: 30, 30 some countries, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In, but, uh, you know, there's quite in yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that's coming. Yeah.
1: So, 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 but typically, and this is a common problem with a lot of the data, the um, the tests will be done in schools that are registered with the government. And the uh, a lot of these low cost private schools, the vast majority are not registered with the government, so they wouldn't appear on the government radar. So the tests will be done typically in the, the government schools um, or uh, yeah, and not, not these private schools. So that's one thing, but I think maybe that's that's a cop-out. I don't know the answer to that, but my guess is it's something along these lines. That What I've described is a relative phenomenon, that these private schools are much better than the government schools in those particular places where they operate, um, but relatively still, schools in Britain and America do better than the schools in the countries we're describing—I think it's probably that, isn't it? Um, that's the major factor. But I, I, I'm, I'm interested, in Professor Peterson, in, what, in your views there. I don't actually know well, the of answer. Of
0: course, you know, P, kids learn from many, many ways. They—they they learn not just in school, but many other ways. And you know, we do know that levels of economic development spill over and have all kinds of educational consequences. So, I, I, I you know, I—I I, you know, wanted to throw that question out at you, but I don't think it's a decisive. Uh, a, a point. Uh, the one that concerns me though is if you go to a private school that's not recognized by the government, how do you get on to further education? How do you get into college? How do you get into the real uh, uh, opportunity uh, world that's out there and is in India is, is growing very fast, but it's only open to some and not to all. Yeah, you go to a private school. Is that are you going to make it into that world?
1: Yeah. So, so, so typically, what happens? Well, there are two or three things that happen. One is actually in some states, and, and Lagos State in Nigeria is one where we've worked very closely with the government, and they have eventually. Said we will recognize children from any school if they present themselves for the examinations, the, 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 the state exams. In other words, they they have stopped discriminating against unregistered schools. So that's that's something that is happening in certain countries. Um more typically, I'm aware of is that the, the, when you get ready for the um the, the exam, the state exam level, you know, the which will then allow you to go on to further higher education, better jobs, and so on schools will group together in federations associations around some of schools that are registered and that those children will go to those schools for they, they, they since they're private candidates at another school and that's where they will do their exams so that's that's a sort of typical way around it and i, I document that actually actually in the previous book that you mentioned um, but that that's well documented the beautiful tree A beautiful tree, exactly. Yes. we don't want to
0: forget the beautiful tree. We're talking about really good (laughs) schooling. One last question that I want to put to you, and that is uh, later on in the book, uh, you say that the voucher program in the United States is not a a good innovation. And and charter schools, you don't like either. And I would have thought, from the basis of all your research, that you would say, hurrah, The United States is beginning to move in the right direction. It may not be exactly where you want them to be, but they're moving in the right direction. Why are you critical of the voucher program that Milton Friedman's work uh, stimulated in the United States, and, and his foundation continues to support?
1: Yeah, it's so. So, so am I critical? Yeah. What w- What I do is I look at. vouchers first of all i look at the voucher system through the eyes of someone who has just come back remember i've just come back from nigeria i've come back from ghana india where the vast majority of poorer kids are in private schools so i see as it were i call it a school choice with a small s and a small c the spontaneous you know embracing of this private market i see this spontaneous embracing there 70 80 or more percent of children are in private schools and then i hear ah great there's vouchers going on in America, which are supposed to be bringing some of these, you know, the privilege of going to private school to wider audiences. And I look at the evidence from Milton Friedman, Milton and Rose Friedman's own foundation, and, you know, I have the figures in front of me, the 2017 figures, which are the latest I used for the book, 0.36% of children involved, enrolled in voucher programs. That is up from 0.21% four years earlier, but it, does, it doesn't seem so remarkable, you know, less far less than half of 1% when I'm seeing 70, 80% of children. So it makes me wonder then, so, you know, why are there so few children in these voucher programs? Um, and charter schools, as you know, I mean, I, I when I looked at them, about, it was about 6% of American children in charter schools, so it's higher, but still it's not those numbers I'm used to seeing over there. So why is it like that? And and I, I, I quote from Milton Friedman himself, who, who got very discouraged in later life when he saw—did you describe one in California, one in Utah? I think these brilliant voucher programs, which are oven ready, as we say in England—you know, oven ready, ready to go—and um, and at the last minute, they get stymied. They get stymied by a, a great, uh, you know, huge teacher union effort. And these programs that are supposed to be massive, they are supposed to be universal, that's the whole point of the Milton Friedman Voucher, universal, not targeted just to special needs kids, they fail. And so it's not so much, I mean, critical, it's it's the evidence leading to say, okay, do I want 75% more of kids to be in private school or do I want less than half of 1%? I want the Latin. So therefore, you know, I mean, the book, I know you don't like these parts of the book and you know, I'm not saying they're good. I'm just saying they're there. But what I try and do in these latter parts of the book is actually an answer, answer a question that I'm often asked when I give talks at conferences and uh, in in American Britain. I'm asked that question, well, why is it so different <laughs> there to America and Britain? Why haven't we got this flood of low and affordable private schools? And um, you know, and then so I look at what's available and I say, well, perhaps in a way, the charter school movement and the, the voucher school movement, they're, you know, in the sense, crowding out this sort of purely private entrepreneurial activity. If you're a, that sort of entrepreneur who could be attracted to opening a school, well, there are charter schools, they sort of crowd you out, their voucher programs. But it's, I don't think I'm being critical through my own eyes, I'm just sort of stating that's a low number. And then Milton Friedman himself got frustrated. And then, as I said at the beginning, I think of this chat, um, Milton Friedman changed his mind about vouchers, um, which I document in the book. He changed his mind because he he then was introduced as evidence of low-cost private schools in the slums of Victoria, England and in the in, 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 in America before the state got involved, that were bringing almost universal schooling, excuse me, before compulsion before state funding. And he said, well, if it can, could happen, then maybe it could happen now. And maybe we don't need the state to be so involved. But meanwhile, as a way of getting there, we'll support vouchers, but maybe there's an alternative, spontaneous order. I mean, that's not the word he uses, the word I'm using that could emerge on its own. COVID might, might uh, bring about
0: your, uh, your desire here because we have seen an expansion of homeschooling probably you know was it about 3% before we don't have actual numbers now but some people are saying it's doubled to to 6% uh, are we yeah. going to see uh, a resurgence of uh or a, a, a all of a sudden we're going to be nearing the 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 world and, that you've been advocating
1: well you know, and and I know you you don't like my book the, the, these latter parts, and you were quite sceptical about my you know almost willing COVID to come. Obviously, that's not true. I, I know you didn't mean it, but um, you know COVID has exposed certain divide, hasn't it? Those children who who were going to private schools have done much better than the kids who going to the public schools, and the public schools in you know I, this is anecdote. My guess is there's evidence coming.
0: But we did a poll that shows exactly that. Parents are much more satisfied with what's been going on in their private schools than the parents who are sending their kids to public schools.
1: And, And so, you know, that sort of utter dissatisfaction with the public schools, that reflects what's going on in Nigeria and India. The utter dissatisfaction, teachers not turning up. Well, in a sense, that's what's happening in America now. Teachers are not turning up because of the COVID lockdown situation. And therefore that utter dissatisfaction can cause parents to behave differently. And maybe it will be the rise of homeschooling. Homeschooling, I imagine, is very, very difficult um, for most parents, particularly if you're working. And so therefore could emerge out of that the rise of the low-cost private schools that I'm seeing elsewhere. Um, I started a low-cost private school up in England, in the north of England, to dip my toe in the water. And, um you know it's a very small school it's just broken even and um so but it's it would cost it, the the fees are three-fifths of the per capita funding in the state sector one-fifth of the per of the fees in um a, a normal uh, private school and we've passed all our regulatory tests and um are have now broken even and you can do it all for 150,000 pounds to set up. So I'm sort of saying, well, maybe you've got $150,000 in America, you can set up a low cost private school along the lines of what I've done there, attract these homeschoolers, these reluctant homeschoolers. I think a lot of people are reluctant homeschoolers. They don't want to send them to schools, to the public schools. They don't send their children to the public schools where they're now abandoned as the children are in Nigeria, and these low cost schools could work. But who knows, That's uh, if I was going to put money on that, I would. Well,
0: Chancellor uh, Tooley, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation, and it's a fantastic new book that you have out there called Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High Caliber, Low Cost Education. I've been speaking with James Tooley, Vice Chancellor of the University of Buckingham in England. He is the author of a new book published by the Independent Institute entitled, Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High Caliber, Low Cost Education. Thank you, Chancellor Julie, for joining me today on the Education Exchange.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education X website.